I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. David Kasserat. He's a professor at Duke University and a palliative care physician who shares his research and opinion about medical marijuana. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Well, I wanted just to say thanks for joining us. I know you're a busy guy these days, and I just wanted to just thank you so much for taking time out of your day and talking to us. Sure. Happy to do it. Well, I am really intrigued. Um, We're talking about probably one of the hottest debated subjects around, and that's medical marijuana. But you... Um, did just wrote a book uh, called Stoned, um, a a physician's or a physician a doctor's uh, case study for medical marijuana, and I was really interested in how did you become interested in researching the benefits and or myths of medical marijuana? Well, like most good ideas, this one hit me over the head when a patient of mine asked me whether I thought medical marijuana would be useful for her, and I I told her what I learned in medical school, which is that medical marijuana doesn't have any science behind it. Um, It's risky and it's addictive. And she uh, reached into her handbag, pulled out a a stack of randomized controlled trials, papers that have been published about medical marijuana, and suggested that I should read them before I gave her off-the-cuff advice. And so I did. Uh, I read those papers and I asked around colleagues, looked at some other studies that had been done, and, and realized there was a little bit more science out there than I had anticipated. As a palliative care physician, I was surprised by that, that other people would be too. And um, so this book was an attempt to me to get my head around the evidence that's out there to figure out what we know and what we don't know, both about benefits and, and risks. Well, and, and you didn't you didn't sit behind a, a desk and research this. You actually traveled and you talked to those using marijuana for pain, insomnia, and PTSD. You even experienced it when your back went out as you were traveling. Um, what did you discover? Well, it's it's hard to summarize a book in, in a sentence or two, but I think the short answer is there's um, more evidence of benefits out there than I imagined. Um, it turns out there's, there's actually pretty good evidence that it works for conditions like neuropathic pain, probably for nausea. Uh, probably for la- lack of, of appetite in chronic illnesses like AIDS and cancer. Um, there's probably not as much benefit as some of its most vocal proponents would have us believe. It's not a wonder drug. It doesn't cure cancer. Um, but there are some benefits. On the other hand, there's some risks too. Um, certainly it impairs driving. Um, there's probably a risk of long-term psychological and maybe cognitive effects Um, and it's certainly potentially addictive. So those risks aren't huge. I don't mean to make too much of them, but there are more risks than, again, the the most ardent proponents of medical marijuana would have us believe. It's not perfectly safe. It's not an organic flower, as um, some people claim. Uh, It may very well be a flower, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's perfectly safe. So some benefits, some risks, 
And it turns out the the truth is somewhere in between. It's not a wonder drug, but it's not uh, just a, an addictive recreational drug with no value. Well, what was interesting with when this book is that you research both sides. You sort of provide everyone the facts. And it, it was really interesting and some of the things that you found interesting about marijuana. Well, I've alluded to some of them already that um, uh, there are some benefits and, and there are some risks. I think one of the one of the surprises, I guess, to me was uh, in the risk category. And, um, you know, I never really thought of marijuana as being addictive, certainly not addictive in the way that alcohol or tobacco or cocaine or heroin are addictive. But it, it turns out that um, for people who use regularly, there is a syndrome of addiction, first of all. There's also a withdrawal syndrome that people experience when they stop using it. Um, and the people who study the addiction of, of marijuana, the process by which people become addicted and the biology, the science, say that the same areas of the brain light up in the same way when people are addicted to marijuana as when they're addicted to cocaine or heroin. And that's not to say that becoming addicted to marijuana is as bad as heroin addiction. Um, certainly, it's a different phenomenon. And um, there are also big differences, like you can fatally overdose on heroin, you can't fatally overdose on marijuana. So, a lot of differences. But I was, was surprised uh, by the degree to which marijuana addiction kind of looks like addiction to other substances. And I think that's something I didn't realize. And I, I think it's it's something that people probably don't think about when they think about marijuana. Well, if you had that patient that kind of spark this interest of discovery of trying to look at mer medical marijuana in a more researcher sort of way. I mean, if she was in your office today, would you consider medical marijuana? Well, actually, I, I had a chance to talk with her. She came back to see me a couple of weeks later after I had a chance to look at some of the literature. And I told her that I was practicing in Pennsylvania at the time and as a palliative care physician. And so then it was not legal in that state and I couldn't recommend it, but I told her if it were, um, it's it's certainly uh, a treatment that I would consider. It's not necessarily first-line treatment necessarily, but she had a loss of appetite and she had pain due to pancreatic cancer. And specifically, a, a neuropathic kind of pain, meaning pain due to tumor impinging on, on nerves. And those are two conditions, loss of appetite and neuropathic pain, for which some of the evidence supporting medical marijuana is the best. And, and I told her if it were legal, I'd recommend it. And that's when she told me that uh, she was using it already, and it was working for her really, really well. Um, and so her question to me was really more of a more of a test. Was preventing us not to look further into researching the benefits of medical marijuana? Well, I think there are a couple. Um, one is, as you probably know, uh, marijuana cannabis is a Schedule One substance, which is a designation that's used by the DEA to identify those substances that either have no medical benefits or and uh, have substantial risks, particularly the risk of addiction. So, other Schedule One substances include uh, LSD and, and heroin, um, and that's that's the category that that cannabis is in, which makes it hard um, to do research. There are a lot of additional hoops that researchers need to jump through to get access to marijuana. 
um, there are limits on what kind of funding the federal government, the National Institutes of Health can provide. Um, I think we're, we're getting around that to some degree. I mean, personally, I think one of the biggest changes that could be made to make research easier would be to reschedule uh, marijuana as uh, a Schedule II drug, just like opioids like morphine is. Um, it's potentially as beneficial as morphine, in my view, and it carries substantially less risks. So, I think that's that's reasonable, and that would make it as easy to do um, and fund medical marijuana research as it is to fund and do research on opioids. I'm sorry, because medical marijuana is not in that category, you can't apply for funding do, for research because it's considered kind of a, a legal drug and you can't get your hands on it in some states that it's still illegal. Is that is that correct? Because I know because I think I read that you you talked to someone in Arizona that was actually conducting um, some research around medical marijuana and the benefits, if I if I can remember correctly. Uh, sort of. So th- there, there are a couple of questions there. The first one related to the status of research. It, it's actually not true that you can't do research. People can and have and do. And I talk to researchers who are doing research. Um, so it's it's possible. It's difficult. Um, it also potentially puts universities in an awkward position. If they're doing research involving an illegal substance, um, there are certainly some universities, I think, that are concerned that that might jeopardize their federal funding for research, which depends to some degree on what's going on in Washington and what the administration's views on. So, um, and the same is true of funding from the National Institutes of Health. I think there probably is some funding from NIH um, on the margins, but I don't think NIH has or frankly, will make a big push to fund therapeutic medical marijuana research uh, unless uh, there's a rearrangement of, of scheduling. So, I wouldn't say it's impossible. That research does happen, um, but there are a lot of barriers. And given how many millions of people are using the stuff nationwide, um, I really think it's a shame that we're not making research easier. We're making it very easy for state by state for people to get access to it and use it. But we're making it hard to do research to figure out whether it works and how to use it safely. And that disconnect between the evidence base and use patterns is kind of a problem. Um, I would like for there to be evidence to back up uses. And it's really, really hard for the research community to catch up. When you talk about people using medical marijuana, you know, I think of somebody just sitting out back with a scarf around their neck, smoking a joint. But there are other forms of medical marijuana that has nothing to do with inhaling it. Can you tell us a little bit about other forms that people are utilizing that are beneficial? Sure, you're right. There, there certainly are other forms. And the laws in some states actually very specifically uh, restrict use of smoking the flower and uh, instead focus or only allow other forms of utilization. So one of those forms is uh, a vaporizer, um, which comes in a couple different forms, either concentrates of uh, cannabinoids from cannabis, or um, uh, a vaporizer that heats the cannabis flower itself to a temperature that, in theory, is hot enough to get the cannabinoids, the active ingredients in marijuana, to turn into vapor, 
but not so hot that the material itself, the flour, starts to burn. So, at least in theory, and I think this is borne out by some high-quality research that Donald Abrams and others have done, it's actually a good way of getting the cannabinoids out of the marijuana flour um, without subjecting the lungs to the potentially harmful uh, fumes and smoke and tar and particulates. So that's that's certainly one. There are other routes. Um, one of the most surprising to me, I'll just give you one, is uh, the use of tinctures, which is large amounts of THC and CBD, other cannabinoids, dissolved in very small quantities of alcohol that can be administered by a dropper or a, a spray absorbed through the mouth. So it's a way of, of getting some of the active ingredients of marijuana into the body without smoking or inhaling anything at all. So let's just think that we're in this perfect world. And of course, medical marijuana has been researched and it's the, and you, it has be, and is now being researched and has in the past, but it's full-fledged in research mode and it's legal everywhere to, to recommend medical marijuana to any patients. I mean, would you see this as, as like you said earlier, is it a similar drug like morphine? And do you feel as a physician, does it work the same? Are there, are, I mean, can you compare that to what we're using now when it comes to pain and symptom management? Um, so, a couple of answers. One, marijuana is obviously not, or maybe not obviously, but it's it's not a drug. Um, when you take a morphine pill, you're taking one ingredient, one compound that's morphine sulfate plus fillers and coloring and whatever else is in that pill, but it's one single molecule. When you inhale a puff of a cannabis flower, um, you're inhaling hundreds, probably thousands of different compounds and molecules, some of which we know about, like THC and CBD, um, others of which terpenes, other cannabinoids, we really don't know much about, and we don't know what they do. They're present in smaller amounts, granted, um, but it really is a, a mixture and not a single molecule. So, it, it helps maybe to think of, of marijuana less as a drug like morphine or Tylenol or aspirin or whatever, and more as a, an herbal preparation that has some active ingredients, some inactive ingredients, and then some ingredients that we really don't understand at all. Um, in terms of mechanisms of action, you asked about that too, totally different. Um, so morphine, for instance, acts on... Uh, so-called mu receptors and others as well um, that are part of the systemic system we have in all of us to manage pain. Um, the receptors that cannabis uh, molecules, THC, CBD, bind to are different, part of a different axis of receptors and neurohormones. Um, one naturally occurring hormone is called anandamide that a researcher named Raphael Mishulam, who's arguably the, the grandfather of this, this field, discovered back in the 90s. Uh, anandamide is a neurohormone that we all have in us, and uh, when cannabis works, when it has an impact, one of the ways it works is by tricking the body into thinking that those cannabinoid molecules are anandamide. It's a way of kind of hacking into that endocannabinoid system. Um, the short answer, though, is that the way that, that cannabinoids work is probably really pretty complicated. 
probably, if I had to put my money on it, much more complicated than the way that, that opioids like morphine work. And we're just beginning to understand what those receptors do, where those receptors are, uh, and how cannabinoids can be potentially therapeutic. Hmm. So pleasure smoking marijuana versus medical marijuana, you, you say there's, a, there's some risk. Um, there's some benefits, but you have to consider the risk as well. I mean, can you expand on some of the risk for, you know, daily uses or even using medical marijuana for pleasure, but also in the same sense for pain management or, you know, calming down some symptoms that you're, you're facing? Sure. So I've alluded to some of the risks already. Um, there's certainly a risk of addiction. Uh, there's a risk of impaired driving. Now, you actually were in a car with someone who had smoked or taken marijuana, and and you observed this yourself, correct? That's true. That was sort of a, an informal intervention. It was a patient of mine who was using marijuana medically, but illicitly, uh, since it wasn't legal in that state. And it became clear to me during the course of a conversation that he was using it and driving in close proximity. And that made me nervous. And so uh, we agreed that weekend that I would get in a car with him in a deserted parking lot. We'd set up a little obstacle course uh, for which I used lines of bananas laid out on the pavement. <laughs> and he smoked what he usually smoked um, in the morning. <clears throat> and then we got in the car and I asked him to go through the obstacle course and he failed miserably, which was really useful. He realized how impaired he was. And um, to my knowledge, he, he separated his use from his driving by six to eight hours. And as far as I know, he, he really did religiously keep to that. So it was a su successful intervention. But it was really amazing how well that little obstacle course replicated what's been observed in research settings and driving simulators. He was uh, very slow, very extra cautious, was easily distractible, um, drove about two miles an hour, uh, but really had trouble <laughs> aiming, steering, and had a tendency to overcorrect exactly what's reported in, in driving simulators. The interesting thing about people who are driving while stoned, though, is that unlike people who drive when they're drunk, people who are stoned realize they're stoned and they adjust, they go slowly, they're very careful, they're very thoughtful. I mean, they're, they're still dangerous. I'm, believe me, I'm not advocating that, that driving while stoned is better than driving while drinking. They're both bad. Right. Um, but it, it manifests itself in different ways. Um, and it may be there's actually some literature out there that in states that have legalized marijuana, either medically or recreationally, that serious alcohol-related traffic accidents go down. And one explanation of that is that some people who normally would drink and drive are now using medical marijuana, realize they can't drive and stay home or just use and stay home. But still, the key message is don't use medical marijuana or recreational marijuana and, and drive. It's not a good idea. And so I love the comparison that it, it is different than and being actually you know, drunk, but still it's the same hazard that you're causing to, to yourself and other people. The one point that I thought was really interesting, and speaking of your friend that you did this obstacle course with, is that he smoked um, his medical marijuana. And it, there's studies out there that says individuals who are smoking marijuana, what's interesting is that their lungs 
are not damaged by the smoke. And I, I just am so intrigued. To me, it's smoking, you know, a cigarette, a marijuana, whatever. You, you're inhaling some things that are possibly dam- damaging your lungs. But with ma- with marijuana, that is not true. And that's what you found, correct? Yeah. So uh, there's there's been actually a fair amount of good research, uh, a lot of it done by a pulmonologist named uh, Donald Tashkin, who is at UCLA, who has assembled several really high-quality studies of people who are chronic medical marijuana or recreational, usually recreational marijuana users, over time. And he's found that even with fairly substantial exposure, uh, one joint per day over 20 years or more, there may be some subtle changes in pulmonary function testing, but they're pretty subtle, and they're usually not enough to cause symptoms. And he's, he's careful to point out, or he was careful to point out with me, that if, if you are also a tobacco smoker or if you have a predisposition to lung disease, then those effects could be both statistically significant and clinically significant. Um, but in general, the, the theme seems to be that um, when people smoke marijuana, they do so with fairly small doses. To see significant pulmonary function test changes or to significantly increase your your risk of lung cancer, um, particularly the former, but also the latter, many people smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years. And generally, people don't smoke that much marijuana. Imagine what it would be like smoking 10, 20 joints a day for 20 years. Your lung function would be the least of your problems. So, right. So, it's it's probably a lot of dose effect there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, you traveled. Tell me a little bit about, you know, why were you interested in traveling to, to experience um, – you know, medical marijuana or even other usage um, when it comes to marijuana? Because you, you even found yourself in a clinic and and trying to get medical marijuana. Um, and so tell me a little bit about your travels. Uh, well, that was really the most fun part to me. Um, it certainly was great going through the literature and talking to scientists and researchers. Um, uh, but it was also good to, to get a sense of, of who was using medical marijuana and why, and um, spent a fair amount of time in clinics, mostly in California, also in Colorado, uh, meeting patients, learning about what they were using medical marijuana for, why, what it was doing for them, what risks and, and side effects they were worried about. Um, and that was a really useful complement to the, the literature often. And um, it also gave me a sense of, of where the science might go. I heard a lot of stories from a lot of people who were using medical marijuana for PTSD. And uh, there, there really isn't much data out there uh, at all to support that use. But I heard enough stories from people to come away from a lot of those conversations thinking, man, you know, we, we really need uh, to do randomized controlled trials of medical marijuana for PTSD because either these people are right and it is really effective, in which case we should be using it for a lot more people, or it's not effective, in which case a lot of these people who are putting their faith in it need to look for other options. Um, you mentioned uh, somebody I, I spoke with in Arizona. Um, uh, I don't think I talked about that in the book, but there's a physician named Sue Sisley who um, has been trying for 
gosh, four or five years now to uh, get a clinical trial up and running for medical marijuana and PTSD. She has funding. Uh, she has private funding from a foundation, uh, I believe. But just the logistics of getting approval and finding sites and getting a university to to agree to house the study, she's had to jump through so many hoops that the trial hasn't been uh, it may be enrolling patients now, but uh, if it is, that's that's a three, four, five year lag time, and that's that's really a shame that it takes that long to start doing a, a trial when there are people using marijuana for PTSD out there who really I think deserve to know does this stuff work or not. It- Right. Well, what what are your hopes for your book? I mean, you you're laying the research out there. Did you have certain goals that you wanted to accomplish by writing this and researching this? Like feet, you were feet in the field um, doing field research as a physician, but also you you see patients as a palliative care physician every day that could benefit possibly if there were more research um, done. I mean, what were some of your goals? Um, I think the the high level goal was to try to get people thinking and talking more about the science and less about laws and politics. Back when I first started thinking about this book, all of the discussion uh, was about how much money dispensaries were making and which states were going to legalize and when. Nobody is really talking about the science of whether this stuff actually works or the science of whether it poses significant risks. And um, that was was one goal, and I've I've been in a lot of discussions since then that makes me think that the the world is starting to turn to think more critically about benefits and and about risks. So that that certainly was one. Um, also, I my hope would be that this would be a resource to patients um, because there are a lot of physicians out there who are now where I was three years ago thinking that marijuana is an addictive, illegal drug with no medical benefits. Um, it is still illegal in many states, um, but there are some benefits that are significant and some risks that may not be as great as people think. And I, I was kind of hoping that a book written by a physician uh, would be a resource for patients to begin discussions with their physicians, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that medical marijuana is the best thing for everyone, but just having a little bit of evidence and a toe in the door to begin those discussions um, is something that I heard from from a lot of patients I talked to, that they wanted to try it. They weren't potheads. They weren't stoners. They had tried a bunch of other things, but didn't know whether medical marijuana might help them, didn't even know how to raise that discussion with their physicians. I'm, I'm hoping the book will give people some of those tools to do that. Well, do you support medical marijuana? Um, I certainly do. Or is that a loaded question? <laughs> well, it's not a loaded question. I, I certainly support legalizing it um, with some caveats. I think we need a whole lot more research. I mean, just saying anybody can use it, maybe we can do that, but we're not doing anybody any favors to make it available without the research to tell people, people meaning patients, families, healthcare providers, how to use it. So I'm, I'm in favor of, of legalizing. I think we have enough data to know that it works for some conditions, neuropathic pain, um, nausea, loss of appetite in particular. Um, but we need more research. And I really think we need to do a better job at tracking use that people have right now. So I'd love to know more about who's using medical marijuana, why, 
what sorts of side effects they're seeing, what sorts of benefits they're experiencing. It's, it's really this enormous natural experiment out there. Millions of people around the United States are using it, but we're not doing a good job at, at learning from, from their experience. So I think any process of legalization really needs to include a plan of research and needs to include a plan of, of monitoring and registration so we can learn from those patient experiences and patients can learn from each other. Well, stoned a doctor's case for medical marijuana. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule. Now, you're not in Pennsylvania anymore. You're right up the street at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and how long have you been at, uh, at Duke? Yeah, so I moved to Duke in September of 2016 to take over as chief of palliative care and the director of the palliative care uh, center here. Well, we are happy that you're in the state and happy that you're um, with Duke. And and I really do appreciate time. I know you're a busy guy. And I thank you so much for bringing this to the forefront about medical marijuana and laying the facts out there that you've discovered. And, and we can only hope that that possibly politics and laws will stay out of it and maybe further research can actually become available and funding for some of this research that can really give us the nuts and bolts. Is this um, something that we should move forward to? We know it's working now for some patients. Um, I believe in choice and and I, I do think that further research is needed to to support that. And I really do appreciate your time. Well, thanks. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.